Hi, I'm Anne Hegarty, and you're listening to A Good Old Natter. It's that time for A Good Old Natter with Dan Parker. Well, hello there, and a very warm welcome to A Good Old Natter, my podcast series hosted by me, Dan Parker. This is the podcast where I have a general chit-chat with a special guest about their life, career, and just about anything, really. In this episode of A Good Old Natter, I'm delighted to be joined by the governess herself, Anne Hegarty, star of The Chase, former I'm a Celebrity contestant, and now regular in Panto. Anne talked to me about what it's like to work on The Chase, living with autism, and life in the I'm a Celebrity jungle. I hope you enjoy. So, Anne Hegarty, a very warm welcome to Good Old Natter. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yes, not, not too bad, not too bad, thank you, during these, these weird times that we're having. They are weird, yes. So, the governess herself. I mean, Anne, on the chase, all you chasers have your own nicknames and, I guess, alter egos. We do. I want to ask, though, how the governess came about. Was she your creation, or was it the team on the show? Well, it was a, it was a mixture. Um, the name came about because Bradley started using it in rehearsals. I'd previously been going to be called the headmistress, but I said to the producers I would prefer to be called the governess because, to me, a governess is more of a free agent. She hasn't got to report to a board of governors. So I just thought, you know, I'd like to be a bit more Mary Poppins and a bit less, you know, Dolores Umbridge. Actually, there was an element of... of, There was going to be an element of Dolores Umbridge in there originally. Uh, She was going... My character was going to be more sort of creepy than she is. She was going to be a bit more sort of like Carolina Hearn as Mrs Merton, crossed with a bit of Daphne Fowler from Eggheads, and a little bit of Umbridge. What a mixture. Um, in, her, in her more sort of, you know, pink kitten uh, aspect. And then a friend of mine said to me, you won't be able to maintain that. Uh, and I thought, you know what, I think she's right. So I made her much more... I mean, I've, I've, I've since... Um, American viewers have since compared me to McGonagall, so she's more McGonagall than Umbridge. And I think that's a better way to be. Um, yeah, she's a bit of my grandmother, um, a bit of my aunt, a bit of the person that I was when I yelled at a mugger and made him go away. I've done that twice in the last few years. Um, it works. So I was just about to ask, actually, if at all you like the governess in any way, but you say she's more like your relations. I can be. I certainly can be. I can channel her when I need her. I think I'm more... It's hard now to sort of tell where Anne starts and the governess ends. They're kind of blending together. When I first became famous, I had an experience I think people very often have when when they're first famous, which is that it all feels as if you're talking about someone else. It feels as if there's a separate person out there who's the famous person, and then there's me. And I think over the ten years, I've sort of integrated those two people, which sort of makes me feel terrible. And now I just kind of prance around expecting people to know I'm famous. I'm not saying you take it for granted, but you kind of get used to it. And I believe you've been on the chase for about 10 years now, is that right? Yeah, um, I actually got offered the job January the 21st, 2010. They had done a little pilot series the previous year, um, just 10 episodes and just Mark and Sean, because they hadn't been able to find a woman that that they liked. So I joined in series two, which we, we, we recorded in 
oh, April, May, I think. Because to me, watching from the outside, it just looks like the most fun in the world. But I want to ask it you, is. how much do you enjoy it? Oh, I, I, it's absolutely my favourite job I've ever had. I mean, really, this is this is totally the best job ever. And uh, people sort of say to me, you know, don't you get terribly nervous and stressed about it? And the thing is, it's really the least stressful aspect of, of my life. You know, I wake up in the morning and I have coffee and then I have to sort of make myself, okay... Go and get in the shower, go and get dry, go and get dressed, go downstairs, shall I have breakfast? Oh God, no, I can't get my brain in gear to have breakfast, let's just get in the car, drive to the studio, get made up, get hair done, get changed into costume, and then you're down on the studio floor getting mic'd up and I'm like, oh well now at this point I know what I'm doing, you know, this is the easy pit going up. So it's very much a routine that you enjoy? Well, yeah, it's just the whole sort of, you know, life skills thing. Oh, God, have I got to get up? Have I got to get dressed? You know, that sort of thing is really much more stressful. Travelling was always such a stress. But actually being the governess on the chase, I mean, no, I love doing that. Now, and you've, you've obviously opened up and spoken in detail about your autism in the past and how it affects you. Now, of course, being on the spectrum, and I myself am autistic, so can vouch for this. I, I know it's a challenge for anybody. But I want to ask you as someone that's famous now and dealing, I guess, with the pressures of being famous with your autism, how, how do you stay grounded, as it were? Uh, there are different aspects to it. I mean, it, my autism helps when it comes to actually being a chaser and being a quizzer because I'm someone who just naturally is very happy, um, you know, sitting in front of a computer just reading stuff and learning stuff and playing quizzes. And, you know, that's, that's really not a problem for me. Other things, about just over 18 months ago, um, I rented a house in Watford where I now spend a lot of my time. I still, I still got my place in Manchester. And up until then, the travelling was really taking its toll. So that was a problem. I don't mind, you know, dealing with people if I know what to expect. And I don't really mind going to, you know, a big dinner or a big awards do. As I say, if I know what to expect. Uh, and if I'm not just simply stuck thinking... Damn, I don't know anyone here, and I suppose I should make some small talk. Oh, God, what shall I talk to them about? So, you know, there's an element of that. And uh, it can be stressful when people forget that... Um, I mean, one thing I, I have to try to get through to people is a lot of autistic people have a thing called central auditory processing disorder. Uh, and in my case, it's not a hearing disorder. It's a making sense of what you hear disorder. And I found out that in my case... If someone says something to me, it sort of basically goes in one ear and out the other. I can respond to it at the time, but it doesn't get laid down in long-term memory. If you want me to know what you said, I need it in writing. So I've got into the habit of keeping a notebook by the phone, and I do shorthand. So I just take a shorthand note of what people have said on the phone. But if someone wants to, you know, invite me over to lunch and then um, run something past me, they can run something past me, but believe me, it will run past me. And I'll probably just say, yes, okay, mm-hmm, that sounds interesting. And then a few months later, I find that they've gone and set up a whole bunch of stuff based on this. I'm like, what the hell's going on? I have no paper trail about this. So, you know, that, that can be tricky. And for those who may not be completely aware, can you just take us back to when your autism journey began? Talk about an early age. Were there certain traits in early age you recognised where you thought you could be autistic? Absolutely. I mean, uh, it was about 17 years ago, I think, that I started thinking about it um I've well I've got a note in my diary that says 
I'm starting to wonder again if I might have Asperger's syndrome. So there must be some point earlier when I wondered about it, but I can't find out when that was. There was a point a few years before that when I thought I had ADD. Uh, and then I just realised there were too many things that didn't fit. But uh, yeah, then I started reading about it. I started reading books written by people like Gunilla Gerland. She was good. And other memoirs written by uh, autistic people and things written by specialists in autism. I found out what the um, diagnostic criteria were. And I drew up these tables with a list of the diagnoses down the side and then columns for whether I did this, whether I used to do it as a child and whether my dad did it. And uh, those columns filled up pretty fast. So I took them to see my doctor and he said, honestly, the fact that you've produced these tables alone suggests to me that you may well be on the spectrum. Um, and he was very sympathetic. It turned out he'd actually trained as a doctor with a, a guy called um, Digby Tantum who is an autism expert. But we did have some difficulty getting me referred. He couldn't get me referred there. I couldn't be referred to Simon Baron Cohen because I didn't live in Cambridge. There were various options. After a couple of years, we found um, a woman who specialised in uh, learning disabilities in children. So I went, I went along there and um, went up to the reception and said, I, I, I've got an appointment. I gave him the name. They said, oh, you're here with Anne. I said, um, I am Anne. And they just kind of looked at me, you know, because I think they were expecting a non-verbal child or something. I'm like, no, actually, I am Anne. I'm here for the diagnosis. But she felt, yes, you know, after about an hour's conversation, she wasn't too sure at first. She felt I did, you know, conform to them. And then, I mean, I was sort of quite happy to, to talk to people about it. And they didn't seem too interested until about... Uh, about the middle of 2017, I got invited to do an interview for, I think it was Fabulous magazine. And this guy had read a little bit about how I was autistic, and he asked me about it. And then I went to Australia to do the Trace Australia, and while I was there, the interview came out, and he had actually really taken it on board, and the interview was mostly about autism. And I came back, and there was just all this excitement. Suddenly everyone was like, oh my God, we found this autistic person that we didn't know about. <laughs> And then when I went into the jungle and Rita started asking me about it, I didn't raise the subject, Rita did, so I talked about it. And um, when we were being driven out of the jungle, my brother said to me, you have no idea how bonkers it's become. And then, you know, I got this marvellous book from the NAS, because apparently when I'd mentioned it, it had actually crashed the NAS website. So, um, because they couldn't reply to everyone individually, they took the messages and they put them into his book which obviously I've still got. Well, that was kind of awesome. I mean, and just how touching was that for you? Uh, well, that was amazing. I mean, you sort of feel really, you know, in, in modern parlance, you feel seen, as it were. So that was nice. I would quite like, having said that, I sort of quite like if people were interested in other things about me besides the fact that I'm autistic. I, I seem to do an awful lot of stuff that's just sort of entirely about that. And I'm sort of like, you know... Ask me what music I like and stuff. And, uh, well, I'll know, ask you, Anne, what music do you like? Oh, um, <laughs> people, uh, yeah, whenever people do ask, I sort of, sort of say, well, I like 40s jump blues, I like 50s <laughs> R&B, I like uh, 60s soul and doo-wop. And by that time, I'm looking at them and I'm like, I've lost you, haven't I? <laughs> A bit of everything. It's gone, this has gone completely over your head. You have, you, I lost you at 40s jump blues because you have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, and then I sort of take pity on them and I say, I quite like pre-war jazz. 
and they, they all they hear is the word jazz. Jazz! I know, I know I've heard of jazz. So that means you like Miles Davis and Charlie Parker and okay, you know what? I did, I mean I I don't mind them, but you know, I did actually say pre-war. So, you know, I actually like people like Jack Teagarden and uh, King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band, and, and, and I've lost them again. And they're like, okay, once again, <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. I feel like we need to start a new petition, and for Desert Island Discs. Oh, God, I'd love to. I'd, I really That's just the dream, to. isn't it? That would, that would be fantastic. I would love to. Now, and speaking of music, music is, of course, something that many people have listened to more during these weird lockdown times we've been having. Yeah. Now, I understand you've actually been coping pretty well during lockdown, haven't you? Um, I've actually really enjoyed lockdown. Um, I'm actually perfectly happy just staying at home uh, and sitting in front of a computer and, and communicating with people through a screen and not when I don't want to and keeping the sound off so that nothing sort of cuts something else blaring at me. If someone sends me a video, I can watch the video and I don't have to listen to the video. And uh, just sort of, you know, not having to go anywhere. I can remember when lockdown first came in, I can remember this sense of massive relief, thinking to myself, nobody can ask me to do anything. You know, it's not just that... I have the right to say no. It's that I don't have to do that extra bit of emotional work of ignoring the fact that they're disappointed, you know, because they can't even ask. If they ask, I have to say, none of us can do that. Yeah. We're so sorry. Yeah. So you know, been, and it's genuinely not my fault. You've just been enjoying the fact that life's pace has slowed down a bit. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I had worked, I've been really working so hard. I just feel, really since mid-2017, it felt like it didn't stop. Uh, and I hoped that, you know, if I had a more permanent base down south, it would get calmer. And then at the end of last year, the last few months of last year, I was um, off making a documentary that um, took us to three different continents. That's going to be shown in, in uh, January. And so, you know, that was just exhausting with travel. And, uh, you know, then we came back, we were, do we were filming The Chase, and there were all sorts of plans for things that were going to be done this year. And, I mean, it's disappointing that they've, they've not been lost, they're, they're put forward, they're put back till next year. But, you know, there was a ton of travel I was going to be doing, and uh, suddenly it wasn't there. And for some people, they would have felt absolutely lost, but for me, I was like... Whoa, I have time to sort out all the things that were going further and further into the background uh, that people were clamouring at me for and that I just did not have the time to get my head in the right place for. And things... I, I, I really need to do things so much more slowly than other people want me to. Mm. And it felt like I really could slow it all down. So uh, I, I really have valued that. I haven't had a cold since February. Obviously, this is partly because I've barely seen anyone. Um, but I think it's also the other thing that gives me colds is when I'm stressed, when I'm feeling overworked. Up until then, I'd had something like three colds in five months because I was like, you know, I'd get home and I think, is there any point in unpacking? I'm off again tomorrow afternoon. Let me just try and remember what stuff's in the suitcase, what stuff needs to come out, what stuff needs to go back. Uh, and that sort of thing. And I had suitcases lying around, you know, that hadn't been unpacked since I'd got back from doing Panto in, in January. You know, there were still suitcases sitting there open and there were still things in them. And during lockdown, you know, you kind of got all that stuff done. And I got years worth of um, 
accounts done, which please the uh, always good land revenue, <laughs> <laughs> please my accountants. So that was good. I wouldn't mind it going on a bit longer. The problem is, I understand that for an awful lot of people, it's been absolute chaos. You know, there are there are people I go to. There are hairdressers and salons and people who really need. Uh, I mean, I, I've done Panto um, every Christmas since 2014. And, uh, you know, there are so many theatres that are actually going to go out of business because they can't stage anything until further notice. And, you know, you worry about them because what else can they do? I mean, some people just have the kind of job where they have to meet people. And I don't know what to suggest. They're just absolutely stranded. No, it is heartbreaking to see for sure. And I want to ask you, during lockdown, has there been anything you've, you've missed at all? work I mean I've missed you know it's always nice to just go to the studio and do the chase and I appreciate doing that and also you know we were on repeats for such a long time because we basically we just didn't have enough shows in the can we were running out and you know all the chasers were at home messaging each other saying they're showing repeats again and you know we're all raring to get back to it and it just isn't possible for us to get into a studio starting in September we did some celeb shows we've got the Christmas shows in the can and then last month and uh, for a few days this month, we've been doing the actual daytime show. So we've got quite a few of those now in the can, about 36 shows in the can, which is very much better than nothing. So it's been nice to just kind of be able to get out and do things. I understand Beat the Chase, this is coming back too, is that right? Yeah, we certainly hope so. Um, we're not quite sure how that's going to work, but we do hope we're going to be filming. We're going to have three tests each, while, during and before and during filming. Um, just to make, I mean, we, we all had to have a Covid test before we started doing the um, celeb shows, uh, and we all came back negative. So um, we're going to have to do that again three times before we do Beat the Chasers. I've got to say, we've seen so many quiz show spin-offs in the past, mm. which just, for me, haven't worked. Mm. But Beat the Chasers just seem to work. Beat the Chasers is, actually turns out to be a brilliant idea. It was first mooted in summer 2017. And then we did sort of various run-throughs. I remember one early in 2018. And there were just so many things that didn't work. Uh, and we thought it was dead. And then uh, about a year ago, no, probably more than a year ago, we were told, you know, we've, we've worked out a slightly different format and, and we're going to try this out. And that actually worked. And then we tweaked it again and we did another run through and we thought, you know what, this actually really does work. And then we actually um, recorded the series uh, end of January, beginning of February. We got it in the, oh, obviously nobody knew lockdown was coming. But I'm very glad that we did get it in the can. Uh, and then we showed it. And I think a, a good way to do it is a strict show, you know, across a week so that the excitement just builds and builds and people are talking about it. And it just really, really seemed to come off well. I mean, you know, all the chasers get on well because the show wouldn't really work if it didn't. So, you know, we were all sort of quite happy to sit there and chat to each other and, and, and bounce jokes off each other. And, uh, yeah, we're just really happy with it. Now, I'd like to go back to before you were a professional quizzer. Mm -hmm. uh, I understand back in the 1980s you were originally a journalist working for a paper in Wales. Can you tell yes. me about that? Um, I'd always, as a child, I'd sort of vaguely... I was a tremendous reader as a child and I thought, wouldn't it be cool to, to write stuff? Um, and it didn't really dawn on me. I wasn't that good at writing and I certainly wasn't capable of writing actual stories. I can't do fiction. My grandfather was a publisher. So there were always, always books. I mean, books in my house, books in my grandparents' house. And I used to get, you know, the latest 
kids' books, especially if they were published by Collins, which is who he worked for. Um, but at the same time, there was always this thing of, oh, you know, nobody ever makes uh, nobody ever makes a living writing books. You know, grandfather's authors are all terribly broke. That's never going to work. So I, I thought, well, you know, I could do journalism. I managed to get a place on the postgraduate course at um, what was then University College Cardiff. It's one of the two most prestigious courses in Britain at that time. The other one was the one at City University. And uh, to my surprise, I really enjoyed that one. Having not enjoyed being an undergraduate at all, I actually really enjoyed being a postgrad. So um, having liked Cardiff so much, I was very happy when the teachers set up an interview for me on the South Wales Argus, which is in Newport, about 12, 12 miles away. Uh, and they gave me the job. And I was there for three years, um, living in Newport. I spent nine months up the valleys in Ebervale, because you have to, when you're training, you've got to go out to one of the outer offices and so on. And it's, it is a famously good training paper. You meet loads of people who trained on the Argus. And uh, yeah, I'm still in, in touch with, I've got a couple of Facebook friends. Uh, from there who've sort of since found me and I've been chatting to someone else I used to work with on uh, on Twitter. Yeah, so so that was good but um, the problem was I really wanted to be a feature writer uh, and essentially I was still a reporter and I discovered that the features editor didn't like me so uh, I decided I needed to go somewhere else and I went and got a job in Manchester. I very quickly realised that uh, that was actually, in terms of the newspaper in question, it was actually a step down. So I thought, right, and I gradually started thinking, you know, I'm going to need to go freelance. So uh, I did that and um, spent the rest of the 80s writing articles for magazines, mostly local and, and some national. And then towards the end of the 80s, one thing that happened was I finally managed to get some psychotherapy on the NHS. And one thing, that did an awful lot of, of good for me, even though, I mean, nobody knew anything about um, the autistic spectrum at the time. So nobody, that's not something anyone thought of. So they couldn't really put their finger on what was bothering me. One thing I thought was, you know, I don't really like writing and I particularly don't like being edited. I want to be the one to do, to do the editing. And I realised that it was possible to edit and proofread books. That was a thing that one could do. So I did that for about 20 years, mostly academic books. I think I was okay at that. I was very good at spotting, uh, spotting errors. There, there's a book out there where one of the um, comments in the acknowledgements, uh, the author had written, um, the copy editor Anne Hegarty, whom nothing escapes and for whom no detail is trifling. Which is just very autistic, really. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a good job for an autistic person. But I found that increasingly I couldn't quite... I couldn't quite sort of keep the paperwork straight. It was just... There was just too much of everything, and I was just really, frankly, a bit broke. So um, I was on benefits by the time that I happened to discover that there was a high-level quizzing circuit in the UK, and I went along and I got talent spotted for the chase. Fantastic. And talking about the quiz circuit, can you just talk to me about the circuit itself? Because I'd, I'd imagine that you must meet some pretty interesting characters along the way. Yeah, well, I, I went to my very first quiz event, which was May 2009, and it was in a church hall in Rainhill, just outside Liverpool. And the only two people that I recognised in the room were Kevin Ashman and Pat Gibson. Kevin Ashman at that time was an egghead and Pat Gibson would become an egghead within the year. And I didn't know anyone else. And I sat down, it's a written quiz, and I opened the paper and I just thought, whoa, I am so far out of my depth here. <laughs> these, are, these are difficult. 
And then I thought, right, okay, don't panic, calm down, you have an hour and a half. And you started realising that the way the questions were phrased, there were little clues, little ways in, where you could figure out what the answer might be and you could come up with a, a... you know, at least an intelligent idea of what the answer might be. And I didn't do too badly. I mean, the following month, I went along to the British End of the World Championships. And it turned out at the end of the afternoon, when the scores were in, that I was the second highest scoring woman in the world, and the highest in the UK. But in the meantime, I, I um, when we'd finished doing the quiz and the marking... Um, I thought I'd go to the bar for a drink, and I stepped inside the bra... Inside the bra? (laughs) (laughs) You could step inside the bars. I stepped inside the bar, and I was hailed by what I've since described as the largest man I've ever seen in my life. And he said, hi, my name's Mark Mark Labette. You beat me last month. Who are you? Um, So, I mean, I I don't remember seeing it. It's hard hard to see how one could miss him. But I don't remember seeing him at Rainhill because I was just focused on, right, I know these two guys and I'm just going to sit down and I'm going to do this quiz. So that was when I found out that there was this thing called The Chase, um, that he'd just finished doing this pilot show and he said, you know, you should watch it because it's going to be good. Uh, and then it was a, a few months after that, it was sort of suggested they're looking for a female chaser. And the rest is history. So Indeed, yes. So Anne, I thought for a bit of fun, mm. if it's okay with you. Yeah. We've done a little quiz here, okay. and it's just five questions. Okay. Now, if my Google search is correct, these are supposedly fairly hard questions. Okay. But I thought I'll ask you the five questions, and we'll see at the end how you got on. So, are I you ready? I'm, I'm very easily... Um, there is an enormous amount of stuff that I and every chaser does not know. Um, it's quite easy to catch people out. Okay, well, we can't know everything. We'll see how you go. So, question one. Right. Now... We won't include the recently elected Joe Biden in this because Uh I guess officially he's not in office till January. Uh But question one is, can you name all the living presidents of the USA? Ah, the living ones. Um, George Bush Senior has died. So I think Jimmy Carter's the oldest one. He must be there, 96. Um, And Reagan is dead. So the next one is Clinton and the younger Bush and Obama. I don't think Ford is still alive. Uh, and there's Trump. So if we're counting him as former, there's five. Spot on, correct. Good. Question two. How many parliamentary seats are returned to the UK Houses of Parliament? Oh, it changes. They keep revising the boundaries. I think it's 600 and... 600 and something like between 35 and 40. I'll say 636. The answer I have, and this was a 2019 quiz, was 650. But oh, right, okay. It may well have changed. <laughs> uh, no, it may well not have changed. <laughs> okay. But it's, it's always 600 and something. You, you, you were pretty close, to be yeah. fair. Question three. How many noble gases are there, and can you name them all? Oh, uh, noble gases, hang on. I was about to name the halogens. Don't name the halogens, and they're different. Uh, the noble gases start with helium, and then I can't remember the order, but it's... Uh, Neon, argon, krypton, radon, um, xenon. I wonder if oganesson is another one, which would be seven. Correct. Is that right? Correct. Oganesson is quite a recent one. Question four. What is the capital city of Slovakia? capital city of Slovakia is Bratislava. Correct. Also known as Pressburg. And lastly, number five. 
Paul David Hewson is the real name of rock famous yes. rock musician. Bono. Bono from YouTube, Bono correct. Bono yes. Rowan, not bad at all. Not bad at all. <laughs> <laughs> now, and since The Chase, of course, you've, of course, done so much. I'm thinking Britain's Brightest Family. Yes. Beat The Chasers. Regular in Panto now, of course. Indeed. One of the things you'll, of course, be remembered for back in 2018 was doing The Jungle. Indeed. I've got to ask about that experience of doing that. What what was it like? Oh my god, it was awful. It was horrible. Um, I did make you know these ten fantastic friends, uh, which really was the best thing about it. But I I really I tried to leave um, the first morning afterwards. I mean I I just couldn't lay awake all night in floods of tears. Thinking, what have I got myself into? I was quite enjoying the whole walking process up until uh, we got in this little buggy to go into the jungle. Uh, and we were going up and down these little hill, hilly little roads in the jungle. I was like, wee! I mean, I actually remember saying wee. You know, this was fun. And then it stopped, and we had to get out and put on the backpacks and walk. And for some reason, it was just that walk. It just went down and down and down. And I, my spirits just went down and down and down. And we got into And I mean, I was just so confused. I was just so completely out of my depth and out of my element. I had no idea what was going on. It took a couple of days before I even worked out how my, my sleeping pack worked. <laughs> Until then, I was literally, I was sleeping on top of it under the ground sheet because I didn't actually realise, no, 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 you have, this, you have this, this bed and then you have the sleeping bag in it and the liner in that. And I didn't know any of that. I've never, I'd never camped out before. I just sort of thought, I have no idea how to cope. Um, and you know, because we because I managed to sink the boat, uh, and we lost the race across the uh, across the lake, uh, which was hilariously funny. But it did mean you know we'd lost and we got the bad camp. Um, and I just remember you know watching them getting the fire started, and I had no idea how to get a fire started. I know now I'd be a lot better at getting a fire started now, uh, but I really didn't know what we were doing, and I was just in such shock. I really didn't want to eat. You know, they made me some rice and beans, which tasted like wallpaper paste, and I just made myself eat it because I thought I'd better. Uh, and then I just went to bed and let the rest of them do everything. And just sort of basically, you know, lay there with tears pouring down my face, hearing sort of little rustlings in the leaves, and thinking there were spiders crawling across my head. And thinking, I can't do this. What was I thinking? I can't possibly do this. And lying there thinking, all the people are going to be disappointed if I don't. Um, I'm thinking, yeah, but I can't do this. Think of all the money. Yeah, but I don't, you know, I mean, I don't have the money, so, uh, you know, I won't miss it if I don't have it. You know, think of what you might miss. Well, if I don't ever do it, then I won't know what I missed. And uh, I, I went into the Bush Telegraph the next morning and said, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. Uh, and they said, OK, look, um, hold on. Give it a few hours. Um, talk to, you know, they have a medic, medic Bob. Talk to Bob. Um, talk to the psychologist, Sonia. Talk to your campmates, um, who were all absolutely lovely and delightful and so nice and supportive. You know, just take it hour by hour. So I was sort of like, okay, you know, let's, we'll leave it for a, another day. I'll, 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 I'll spend 24 hours here, you know, then I'll spend another night here. And then, of course, they made me do a Bush Tucker trial that I completely screwed up uh, and was just utterly distraught about because it really freaked me out. I don't know quite why I'd never, it had never really properly, I'd never really properly understood what cockroaches looked like. I think I'd always heard the term cockroach and sort of mentally seen something that looked a bit like an earwig. But actual cockroaches like, oh God, no, 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 you know, kill it with fire. 
people just react viscerally to a cockroach. And cockroaches, crickets, the thing about crickets is the way they boing around. Uh, and mealworms, which tend to, you know, just go straight down your bra. And, and I was just... <laughs> so anyway, um, I think that may have been a reason why the producers decided that maybe they should move us back in. Maybe they should move the camps together that night and not wait any longer. And so we were told to, to you know, you pack everything up and, and you get back and, you, and you, you trudge and trudge and trudge. And then we came down the hill into main camp and John Barrowman came running up to us with his arms open. Uh, and I thought, oh, that's very friendly. And then, uh, you know, we were all sort of um, taken to sit around the campfire. Uh, and then Nick Knowles was just so comforting and supportive. And then we opened the presents and, and he gave me his pillow. We, oh my God. That was God. such a lovely moment. That it, well, I mean, A, it was just so incredibly kind and decent of him. B, the actual pillow itself, I really appreciated. I didn't realise, I'd slept badly partly because I couldn't get my head comfortable. If I do Desert Island Discs, I swear that is, that is my special, that item. is my luxury item. <laughs> a pillow is absolutely the best, best thing ever. I did try to give it back to him the next day and he was like, no, it's yours as long as you're here. So does the pillow still take provider place? Oh, well, I mean, obviously I left it there left when it I left the camp because obviously it was Nick's. Um, so uh, I left it to him. But uh, I so, so, so appreciate it. I really did. Um, you know, the actual pillow was so appreciated. And, and the gesture, you know, it, just, it was just so incredibly kind. And I remember waking up the next morning and for the first time, that was the Wednesday, and, and we'd gone in on the Saturday night. And for the first time thinking, I can actually imagine staying here until I get voted off. And I was there for about another two weeks after that, but it was never so bad again. I mean, Snake Rock, you know, probably... It's, it's not that bad in itself. You've got most of the stuff that you actually need. I just remember using the dunny and the... I think what had freaked me out was obviously we'd had to do various trials before going in. And I was quite freaked out by the one I'd had to do where I put my hand in the letterbox trying to release things and I did get them eventually but it took a long time and there were crabs and spiders in there and every time I opened the letterbox this smell would come out I couldn't identify it but when I got to when I used the dunny in snake rock I was like it's that smell it's the same smell and I just sort of thought it's the smell of despair it's the smell of Cthulhu <laughs> I mean I don't know why it was the same smell and the whole place is not it's not unhygienic you know, the, the dunny does get sort of emptied and cleared. You're not in danger of actually getting cholera or anything like that. I actually think it's it's quite skillfully done. Um, you know, you're made to feel uncomfortable and in pain, but you are, you're not actually in danger. I mean, yes, John did twist his ankle, but it took some time for them to get him across the bridge and, and you know, into an ambulance. But... I don't, you know, he wasn't sort of really in danger. I know Nick rather created about it. Nick was angry because there wasn't a defibrillator, um, which he thought there ought to be because Harry had, you know, had a heart attack a few years ago. But that was really the only major thing. We were surrounded, the, the camp perimeter is patrolled by um, ex-soldiers and security guys who, uh, they're not allowed to talk to us, but they sort of make sure, you know, that snakes don't get in and so on. I mean, they didn't completely succeed because we had at least two snakes in camp. But I was a little more intrigued than anything. I, I, mean, I don't mind snakes. Spiders freak me out. Anything that scuttles freaks me out. Snakes I don't mind. 
rats and mice I don't mind. So you know, there were quite a few things that I didn't mind. But as I say, the best thing was just the, the lovely, lovely people. Oh, so, so nice. Yeah, you spoke about the bond you and your campmates had, and that mm. was very evident watching as a viewer. Mm. I've got to ask, are you still in touch with the majority of them now? Yes, we've got a WhatsApp group. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, we chat to each other. I um, was chatting just the other day because a friend of mine that I've done Panto with, did Panto with a few years ago, uh, messaged me to say that he'd been on the Scott Mills show along with Emily Atak. Uh, and uh, he sent me the clip and I listened to it. And I messaged Emily saying, you know, uh, I heard you on, on the show with Sam. Uh, and weirdly enough, Rita um, also has a friend who does panto and knows Sam. So there, there's all these sort of little points at which, you know, and she was sort of like, wait a minute, how do you know? Because the mutual friend was Bob. How do you know Bob? I was like, Rita, you and I went out for birthday drinks last March in Soho, my last night out before lockdown. And I met him there and he introduced us. I mean, how drunk were you? You don't remember. Um, so and now we have become Facebook friends. It's so, like the quizzing circuit all over again. All these it kind of is, yes. Well, I mean, that was the thing I liked about the quizzing circuit, that suddenly, you know, there were all these people that one met once a month and then could keep in touch with. Um, and, you know, quite a lot of them were sort of practically as autistic as I am. So, you know, they're not sort of going to get up in your face about things, but they want to talk about quizzing. Um, when you left the jungle and got back to the hotel in Australia, can you remember the first thing you did? The first thing I did um, was what I said I would do, which was order up loads of different kinds of things to drink. <laughs> Not so much eat, but uh, I, I really missed, because all we had to drink was boiled creek water. And there wasn't really, because, you know, there was 11 of us. And we basically kept a, a big pot of water boiling virtually the whole time. And there really wasn't time to, to let it cool down before you drank it. As it was, we probably were not drinking as much as the medics would have liked. So you were sitting there drinking hot water the whole day. That was the only thing you had to drink. So was it a cocktail you had? Uh, I don't know, because I actually, I actually don't drink alcohol because I don't like the taste. But I had, I, I raided the minibar um, and I had Diet Coke and I had orange juice uh, and I ordered up milk and I made myself coffee. Those were the main things. Mm. Oh, I think I probably had some hot chocolate or something. Those were the main things. Or chocolate. Oh, you can't go on with hot chocolate. Yeah, and I just thought, you know, I want all these things to drink, not so much to eat. Um, and are there any other sort of reality TV shows which you'd perhaps like to do next? Oh my God, no. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, I've sort of always been curious about learning to skate, but I don't really think I would do Dancing on Ice. I can't really think of anything else. Um, I mean, Sean recently did uh, that thing where Don't he, the boat. Where, where he uh, rode around Britain along with uh, my friend Fleur East mm -hmm. uh, and people like uh, Craig Charles and so forth. And uh, yeah, I mean, I know, you know, he did tremendously well. And I always say out of the chasers, Sean is the nicest of us. So, you know, he is the one that's going to get on with everyone. So he's done that. I'm... You can't really beat the jungle, can you? You can't really. I mean, I, I remember someone um, tweeting Emily to say, you know, well done, Em. After this, would you think of doing Dancing on Ice? And she tweeted back, I actually did Dancing on Ice in 2016. So, you know, like I say, learning to skate would be brilliant, but it's one of those things you do and people don't always notice it, whereas you do the jungle, nobody ever forgets you did the jungle. So, yes, that kind of is as big as it gets. Now, Anne, in a good old natter, I always ask the guest to tell me something about them, a little-known fact, which perhaps many people don't already know. So have you got a little-known fact, no matter how quirky or random, that you can share? 
Ah, uh, quirky fact. Um, I can roll one of my eyes in towards my nose without moving the other one. Oh, I can. But you can't. You I can. Can't, I can see really it, and that's impressive. Across. I can vouch for the listeners. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I can read upside down. Um, I think a lot of autistic people can read upside down, actually. I haven't tried that. Um, yeah, um, it's... Um, am I allowed to see your notes? Okay. <laughs> I haven't got my glasses on, of course. Uh, are you still in touch with many of your campmates since leaving the jungle? Question mark. Who that's correct. were you closest to? Yeah, yeah spot on. Yeah. 100%. Well, that's pretty impressive. I can recite couple of Shakespeare speeches off by heart. I can do them quite fast. Do you want me to do them fast? Yes, please. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him who gives and him who takes. It is mightiest and the mightiest. It becomes the throne of monarch better than his crown. His scepter holds the force of temporal power and attribute of more awe and majesty wherein doth set the dread and fear of kings. But mercy is above this sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute to God himself. And earthly power doth then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice. Therefore, Jew, though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice none of us shall see salvation. We do pray for mercy, and that same prayer doth teach us all to render. The deeds of mercy, I have spoke thus much to mitigate the justice of thy plea, that if this follow, this strict course of Ven- court of Venice must needs give a verdict against the merchant there. Wow, so, and um, very impressive. I, I just going to do that one better. Well, I was going to say, see you next at the Globe next year, of you and Dame Judy. <laughs> <laughs> I remember getting in trouble when I was eight years old because my school teachers decided to teach us how to research things and how to look things up. So they decided to set up an information desk where um, every day two kids would man the information desk and they'd have reference books and you would go and ask them a question and they would look it up. And I quite unintentionally managed to scupper it the very first day because I went to the information desk and said, what does mitigate mean? And they couldn't find out what mitigate meant. So they went to the teacher and the teacher came to me and said, there's no such word. And I said, there is two such a word. All right, where did you read it? It's in the Merchant of Venice. It's three lines from the end of the quality of the quality of mercy speech. It's um, to mitigate the justice of thy plea, and I, I thought she was going to thump me. Uh, and she just went away for about five minutes, and then she came back and shoved a scrap of paper into my hand. And I read it, and it said, "Mitigate, make less severe." I thought, right, okay, but obviously they didn't want me to to have asked that question because it apparently foxed everybody. Right. Well, so. well maybe in the future, never say never. Uh, who knows. And Anne, speaking of the future, just, just finally looking ahead, what are your dreams and ambitions? What, what do you want to be next for Anne Hegarty? Um, I'd like to... What would I like to do? Um, happy to go on doing The Chase. Delighted to do that. We've got a, a series of... A new series of Britain's Brightest Celebrity Family in the can. I've actually been part of recording a um, Christmas charity single. It's for the Great Ormond Street Hospital. So Brilliant. I've done that. Um, I'd love to. I'd love to do more acting, probably more screen acting than stage acting. I, I'd be quite happy to do more sort of, you know, panel shows and things like that. I'd li- I'd, I've done Celebrity Juice once. I'd be happy to do that again. Good fun. Uh, that was fun. Yes, it was good. And I mean, last year, for example, I, I drove myself um, down to Bognor Regis to do uh, a little sketch for Stephen Mulhern's In for a Penny. And when it was shown, they actually left the whole thing on the cutting room floor. Uh, and I found out later it was because uh, I was good, but apparently the general public weren't. Um, so right. it's your fault, general public. <laughs> that's that's why I got left on the cutting room floor. But even so, I mean, it was fun. I just enjoyed doing sort of silly little things like that. So when you say on-screen acting, any sort of programmes or films that you could see yourself in? A friend of mine has actually written a sitcom with a, a, a role in it for me. So it'd be lovely if we could get that made. 
we're trying to find out, you know, who might be well, That sounds maybe. exciting. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if it'll happen, but, um, but it should be fun. And who do you think would play Anne Hegarty in a film about your life? Oh, I always used to say Steve Pemberton from A League of Gentlemen. Then I met him and I thought, no, he's way better looking than I am. <laughs> so that wouldn't work. Um, I don't know. I'd be willing to do it. Um, yeah. It's hard to say. I mean, you know, if it gets made sort of like in 30 years' time, then uh, it's going to need to be someone younger. I don't know. And Hegarty, thank you for having a good old natter with me. Thank you very much for asking me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of A Good Old Natter. My huge thanks to Anne Hegarty and Peter Dixon, Giles and Bob for my theme music. Look out for more episodes of The Good Old Natter soon, whether it be on Podbean or on iTunes. And until next time, keep nattering away.